Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, he's one of the biggest names in Canadian country music with a steady stream of hits over the past 20 years. Aaron Prichette is back with a new song, teaming up with Matt Lang and Cody Marks. It's called Liquored Up. And the trio is also heading out on a cross-Canada tour starting Saturday night in Calgary. It's Prichette's first tour in five years. He joins me to talk music, being on the road again, and find out what song he sang at karaoke that earned him his first big break. Uh, I, I'll give you a hint. It's a tough one. What does the future hold for our National Postal Service? The Crown Corporation Canada Post is bleeding money. They're handling between 6 and 8% less mail every year. In UK, there's talk of reducing mail delivery to three days a week as the Royal Mail there looks for ways to remain sustainable and solvent. Again, Canada Post is facing all the same challenges. So what does the Crown Corp that lost a half billion dollars in 2022 need to do to turn things around? I put those questions to one of the country's top experts on Canada Post. But first, it's been more than 16 years since serial killer Robert Picton was convicted of second-degree murder in the deaths of six women. The now 74-year-old was sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. He was charged with killing 21 other women, but those counts were stayed and never heard at trial. The families of his victims are back in court now, trying to prevent the RCMP from going ahead with a plan to return or dump thousands of pieces of evidence collected during that long and expensive investigation. How is the force justifying this move? And do the families of Picton's victims have a case here? We find out. Let's begin right away with a court case unfolding right now about the Robert Picton investigation. I know it's been 16 years since the serial killer was convicted of second-degree murder in the deaths of six women. The now 74-year-old was sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. He was charged with killing 21 other women, but those counts were stayed and never heard at trial. The DNA of another six women women were found on his farm. No charges were ever laid in those cases. Uh, Picton once bragged to an undercover police officer in his jail cell that he'd killed 49 women. The investigation was one of the largest and most expensive in Canadian history. It, of course, resulted in that conviction, but also left a lot of unanswered questions. And mountains of evidence that had been gathered have been sitting in storage, some 14,000 items in all, perhaps more ever since then. And it is the future of that evidence that, in fact, has this case or has a case in front of the courts in 2024. The families of people murdered by Picton are among those demanding that the RCMP halt a plan to return or dump thousands of pieces of evidence seized during the investigation. They've sent a letter to the federal public safety minister, the commissioner of the RCMP, and BC's attorney general calling on them to take steps to preserve this evidence. Here is Sarah DeVries, daughter of one of Picton's suspected victims, uh, Sarah Jean DeVries. The 29-year-old was last seen uh, in April 1998. Her case was one of those 21 stayed in 2010. Getting rid of that evidence destroys all chances we have for future cases and cold cases in Canada. Now, the RCMP insists the evidence no longer has any investigative value. The force said that a small number of the 14,000 items will be returned to the families and the rest of it, most of it, will be destroyed. But given how technological advancements have helped police solve cold cases and others in recent times, the families, again, of those missing women uh, have some pain hope that one day they could get some more answers. Now, that process was meant to continue in court today, but it was delayed to give all interested parties the chance to seek standing, uh, in other words, to take part 
in these in this hearing, uh, including the advocacy group Justice for Girls. Sue Brown is the director of advocacy and a staff lawyer with the NGO, and she joins me now with more on this. Sue, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks very much for having me, Ben. I know this is ongoing. I I, I thought there was something scheduled for today uh, on this application, but uh, but it didn't happen. W- what's going on? Yeah. Um, so the case is is still very much alive and ongoing. Uh, the application that was originally scheduled to be heard today in uh, Supreme Court was adjourned to allow parties who are interested in seeking standing in the application to apply for standing. And then the court will determine um, whether to grant standing in another couple of months or so. Right. Yours being one of them. Yes. Justice for Girls does intend to uh, apply for standing in the application as a public interest group. We're very interested in bringing the court's attention to the public interests and victims' uh, rights uh, issues that are tied up in what is otherwise a fairly technical and um, not talked about often provision of the criminal code, which is section 490 that deals with the seizure retention and disposition of items seized by the police in the case of an investigation. Yeah, because I think a lot of people would have seen this headline and thought, and thought too, well, in my case, thought two things. Wow, they still have all this evidence. I wonder why they're keeping it. And otherwise, maybe they should, if they've kept it this long, maybe they should hold on to it for a while longer. So what does it, I mean, this is clearly, as you pointed out, it feels like a bit of a technical issue, but but for so many uh, families of those who, of the victims, Robert Picton's victims, this is anything but. Absolutely. It is, you know, it's a discrete provision of the criminal code. It's not particularly interesting to read, not typically all that salacious or contentious, um, but it has become so in a couple of cases and can have far reaching impacts, not only for the rights of accused, but also for families and the public in seeking justice in cases like these. When we look at the Picton case, um, this is probably one of the most extraordinary and complex uh, cases in Canadian history. We're talking about up to potentially 50 women, maybe more women and their families who are impacted by the circumstances around the Picton investigation. And in some ways, you know, many of those cases are unsolved. Many of the families are still seeking answers and the public is still seeking answers. And the investigation was so controversial and there were so many questions and concerns about the quality of the investigation from day one that, of course, it led to the Picton missing women's inquiry. Um, It's featured in multiple investigations and um, inquiries into police uh, conduct in the cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada and British Columbia in particular, as well as the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry. Um, and so you know, the question does become, yeah, they, they have kept this evidence for so long, but what are the standards for the retention of evidence? Are there policies in place for retention of evidence? Is there oversight, accountability, and transparency obligations on the part of the RCMP? to uh, account for when they make investigative decisions about when a case is closed, when they're not going to continue to actively investigate it, and when evidence can be disposed of. So there's layers of questions in this case, um, but at the heart of it, our biggest concern is the families. And we believe that the families for all of the women who were missing, um, some of whose cases are linked to the Picton farm, others maybe not. They deserve answers, they deserve transparency, and they deserve to have a role and a say in in what happens in the investigation and the conclusion of the case into their missing or murdered loved one. 
because I gather there are about 14,000 items. Is that is that correct? I mean, again, it was a huge investigation, one of the biggest in Canadian history. And, mm -hmm. and I guess the statue, I mean, I guess this is normal course of practice at some point for them to start returning some of these items, destroying other of these items. Um, do, you, do we have a sense of what it is we're talking about when we say 14,000 items uh, being held by the RCMP? We have yet to see the list of items that, uh, but to our knowledge, it is all of the items that received or seized from the Dominion Avenue property and maybe other uh, places associated with the Picton investigation um, and does contain things like hairbrushes um, and or toothbrushes and, you know, other like farm equipment, for example, mm -hmm. and other everything that was taken. I mean, the property was raised um, at the time and very thoroughly investigated and excavated, uh, actually. So there's, you know, thousands of potential types of right. exhibit. I suppose in, 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 in a different case, or it would be normal course of action to, to get rid of this stuff. I suppose that's just the way it operates, but what are they proposing here? What, this, it, did this come up purely because this would be the time when under any other, in any other case that this evidence would be, would be gotten rid of? That's an open question. We're not right. sure because we don't have national standards for retention of items in unsolved homicides and missing persons cases. Generally speaking, to my knowledge, uh, where there's been a case and there's been a conviction and that person has exhausted all of their appeals, uh, usually, you know, the RCMP apply to dispose of exhibits within a, a reasonable time frame, um, three months or so after the the everything has been exhausted. Um, but in a case like this, uh, Canada, I don't think we've seen uh, a situation such as complex and layered as this particular case. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure Section 490 was conceived of in, in a context where they were considering a scenario such as this. It's unclear to us why now, why the RCMP started these applications. And the first application was heard in relative quiet in 2020. And there have been four five applications, four since that first one, since that time that have already been adjudicated. And to my knowledge, the evidence has already been disposed of. We didn't hear about any of those. So why the RCMP is seeking to do this now, we don't know. Um, they're citing, you know, that the case is closed or is inactive and they feel they've exhausted all uh, investigative avenues, but we just don't simply believe that. And we think there is more that can be done. We have questions about the quality and adequacy of the RCMP investigation. And further, we have to highlight that the women who disappeared are not just any women. These are some of the most marginalized women and girls um, in this country. And they their human rights were violated then. Um, the multiple inquiries since the investigation started have highlighted multiple human rights violations throughout the investigation of these cases. Um, and in our view, disposing of the evidence right now is just a further violation of the rights of, of them and their family members. Sue Brown is Director of Advocacy and a staff lawyer at Justice for Girls, one of the parties seeking standing as the RCMP's uh, application to destroy or dispose of evidence or return uh, pieces of evidence gathered in the Robert Picton serial killing case uh, continues. Um, Sue, when, when you look at it, I guess when you talked about the clause that governs these sorts of things, was it written when we knew the evidentiary value of things like DNA, for instance, I mean, it would have been in, in, in its infancy, but we've seen just how much investigative powers have changed uh, over over time when it comes to technology. Is there a fear here that evidence that could be used, that could be used in the future, will be disposed of because we just don't know its value right now? 
Absolutely. The technological advancements in DNA and extraction of other types of biological evidence, for example, have come so far in, in the past 20 years since the initial Picton investigation, and we don't know where it's going to go. Um, the RCMP assure us that they've preserved DNA. Um, but sometimes DNA in these cases can be a little bit of a red herring. Biological evidence and DNA evidence is important in criminal uh, investigation and convictions, but it's often not the only piece of evidence that leads to a conviction. Police still have to rely on old tried and true investigative strategies, interviewing witnesses, you know, garnering tips, doing other types of, of investigation to secure a, a conviction. And, and there aren't very many convictions that are secured on DNA alone. So it's important to, to look at this more broadly and say, okay, what is the value of a huge amount of physical evidence? Because no single piece of evidence is necessarily useful in isolation. It's a, a, a number of pieces of evidence that tell the story about what may have happened. And because we're talking about so many people, not only so many potential victims of Picton, but also so many potential co-conspirators or people who were parties to what happened on the Picton farm and the deaths and disappearances of so many women. Um, you know, there's there's so many potential links that have yet to be made. There's potential witnesses that could come forward that could shed light on a piece of evidence that otherwise the police was thought thought was not, you know, necessarily of any evidentiary value. So we don't know what we don't know. And in a case so complex with so many potential rights violations, so many potential uh, future prosecutions, and so many people and family members who are impacted by the loss of their loved one, but also by the failure of the justice system to bring forward prosecution and remedy for the violation of their rights and the violation um, of, of the rights of their loved ones, that there is a need to maintain this evidence. And then layer on top of that, the broader questions about, did the police do everything they could to properly and thoroughly investigate these cases? And we simply do not know. We don't know what's happened since Robert Picton was convicted of six of these cases. Um, a number of years ago. We don't know what's happened since then. Uh, and I think the police have to answer to that before they can take the this, this steps of destroying all of this potentially valuable evidence that could provide answers to the public. So I suspect this is exactly what will be argued in front of a judge when you get a chance to, if you, if you in fact, if your group does, but in general, that will be the argument put forth by yeah. those who are opposing this move. Absolutely. Yeah. If we are granted standing, we hope to assist the court in considering what the potential public interest impacts are and the impacts on families in these cases and you know what role the courts have in not only overseeing the rights of property owners in the case of an investigation where items have been seized, but also overseeing the retention and stewardship of that evidence going into the future to protect the rights of the public and protect the rights of victims and to see full realization of, of the rights of all people to thorough and adequate investigations by police. Right. If, if I hear case. you right, it sort of sounds like it's always been treated sort of like a property issue, when in fact, it, this is in some ways also a victim's rights issue. I mean, we're not, you know, there's other elements going on here, but that this is a victim's rights issue. And that, it, and you mentioned it earlier that it is, uh, it is inconsistent across the country. And I suppose a case like this highlights why perhaps there should be rules, even if they're not necessarily needed often, why there should be some real solid uh, guidelines in place. Absolutely. We think there do need to be standards so that everybody knows, you know, what ball ball field we're playing in right now and, and what to expect from the police and the police know what to expect in terms of how much time they have. We don't believe that the police should have 
uh, all the power to indefinitely hold all items seized in any investigation. Um, there does need to be a balance of when an investigation needs to end and when property needs to be returned in circumstances. Um, this is not one of those cases. This is a very unique case. Um, and it is, you know, a, a pertinent question, not only to policymakers who are um, considering this particular provision or these, you know, types of, of protections in the criminal code, but also for the courts in terms of what is the role of policymakers? What is the role of the province? What is the role of the federal government? What is the role of police and the courts in terms of coming together as a criminal justice system to to see how these items are treated um, okay. and and to um, do their part to ensure justice is served? It feels like a real gap here that I don't think I, I mean that I didn't know much, but I don't think most people knew much about. Uh, I would agree with that. I mean, it's certainly a provision that's used frequently as a procedural provision in criminal cases. Um, and But I don't think it's been uh, dealt with in this context to this magnitude. There have been a couple of cases in the re recent years where, unfortunately, the police didn't follow uh, Section 490 and um, in terms of the rules around seizing and seeking uh, permission from the court to keep exhibits. And as a result, um, cases uh, were ended up not not proceeding because the police couldn't retain jurisdiction over the evidence. So it is an important provision and one that I think everybody is starting to look at and say, do we need to reconsider what this provision actually includes? What is the purpose of the provision? Who has standing in these cases and, are, and a right to have a voice at the table in terms of this big policy question? Um, and it, should it just be the RCMP and and should the discretion simply lie with the RCMP as to when they decide that they no longer need the the evidence? So um, this will this is proceeding now uh, with with a few obviously the delay to allow other parties to to apply for standing and so on. So might we see a resolution to this sometime in the next six months or so? Is that is that is that how quickly it might move or may it take longer than that? I can't predict that, unfortunately, uh, given that there's such a large number of exhibits yet to be disposed of or, or dealt with. And the, and the question um, is looming as to how that's going to happen. I expect it will be a, a while yet. Well, Sue, uh, thank you so much. It's a, it's honestly, it's a subject when I was reading about it, it, it was it was piqued my interest because I thought, how does that work and how do they get rid of evidence? And now, uh, thanks for the explanation. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. If you spend a fair amount of time on social media, as I do, um, everything from Facebook to Instagram, Twitter, X, um, you see your fair share of content that you don't subscribe to. It just sort of pops up. It's uh, it's targeted at you. It, you know, you want they want you to see it. A lot of it's just basic advertising. Like on on Facebook, I get tons of advertising for stuff that I you know that I bought in the past or whatever. But recently. And you may have noticed this. I mean, I see it specifically on X, on Twitter, but it's popping up elsewhere as well. There are posts that look like news stories. They look exactly like news stories, except they're more salacious and offer less information off the top. They're splashy headlines. The photo of a Canadian celebrity, some very well-known, some not as much, Howie, Michael Buble, Howie Mandel, Sophie Gregoire. And a new target that I've seen, and this is what prompted tonight's conversation, one that I saw repeatedly over the past few weeks, is a woman named Mary Berg, who I didn't know 
anything about. Now, she won the third season of MasterChef Canada. She's a host of cooking programs. She has a daytime talk show called The Good Stuff with Mary Berg. She's, you know, she's she's someone that people know. And all of a sudden, there are all these ads about, you know, she's in tears, pictures of her in tears. What has she done wrong? Her career's over. She's, you know, I mean, uh, the breaking news banner. It, it was all very kind of alluring, or at least eye-catching, um, that she there was a big scandal, that she's ashamed of something. And you're supposed to click on it to read the story and see what it's all about. Now, invariably, on the one that I clicked on, even though you're really not supposed to click on those things, it sort of eventually led me to an ad for cryptocurrency. That's where it brought me. Uh, Now, of course, none of this is true, by the way. None of it. She told the Toronto Star that her legal team has contacted the website registrar to take down the page in question. Uh, But they look like real, legit news reports, kind of, at least to the the untrained eye and even to the trained eye. You stop and look at it to see what it is because they are very eye-catching. You'd be tempted to click to find out more, wouldn't you? as I was mentioning, another one shows Howie Mandel seemingly caught in this world-class scandal. Uh, there were posts showing anchor Lisa Laflamme. Uh, this is a Toronto Star article that they did on this because I've seen these too, but I blocked a lot of them, so I couldn't find them all when I wanted to go looking for them. Uh, Lisa Laflamme doing interviews about a new obesity cure. Sophie Gregoire Trudeau telling the truth about her divorce. I mean, all of them are meant to catch you and to catch you out. And they use the logos and the colors of real news organizations. In this case, it was CTV. I've also seen uh, CBC Global as well. Uh, I mean, they're well done. And it got me thinking, how can these possibly be allowed? Who's behind them? What are they for? What recourse do you have if you're one of those who finds yourself with your photo up there and it's not you, it's making these salacious and untrue claims about you? So what is going on here? And if you haven't seen these ads, so this makes no sense to you, just keep in mind that this is actually a much broader conversation about using celebrities and sort of salacious headlines to catch your attention on social media and then to feed you something that isn't real because this becomes a much bigger issue around politics and so forth, so on and so forth, especially as the Americans headed to an election this year and we are quite likely headed to an election either this year or next. David Shipley is CEO and co-founder of Boceron Security, a cybersecurity software firm based in New Brunswick, and he joins me now. David, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, I have to confess, I, I didn't know who Mary Berg was. And then all of a sudden, my social media feeds were were packed with this woman. I'm like, oh, what's happened to her? And I suppose that's the whole point, right? I mean, uh, tell me a bit about, about this these waves of things that people have been seeing on various social media platforms. So they're, they're tapping into the zeitgeist, the current sort of state of culture at any given time. You know, the non-scientific probably way of looking at this is clickbait, right? right. What is the most likely thing to get your attention? And apparently Mary Berg is along with Howie Mandel. I didn't even know that Howie was still active. And then, then right. I found doing a game show. I mean, I'm I'm even more removed from many elements of pop culture unless I'm being specifically targeted for sci-fi and Battlestar Galactica. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's been fascinating to watch and it's happening at an interesting time for social media. So depending on the platform, the way that these um, these interactions are being shaped look like media stories. And so they look like they've been screen captured from CTV or global or other things. So they use a veneer of plausibility and brand awareness to capture attention. The, the big unknown is why and what are they trying to do? Well, indeed. I mean, I, I clicked on one of them just out of curiosity. 
Um, and it led me sort of to this strange, this strange thing that was clearly not true. And then eventually to a to a cryptocurrency ad of some sort. Um, but these these are ads. I mean, these are paid for, no? Well, they are the, in 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 the case of the Facebook ones, absolutely. But what's interesting is some of these ads have been placed by accounts that have been hacked. Oh. Um, so it's not like they're just setting up legitimate businesses to set up ads to clickbait you into selling a legitimate product. I mean, as scummy as that would be ethically, um, at least it would make sense in a in a bizarre twenty twenty four kind of way. What's interesting is this, someone is clearly taking steps to hide who they are, and they're clearly trying to do something not in somebody else's interest, aka crime. Now, the most innocuous form of this crime is ad fraud. What do you mean by that? Sure. Well, when you click on the Mary Berg clickbait, she's going to jail, CTV News uh, ad, and you go to the web page, they may be filling that page with a whole bunch of other ads, just spamming it all out there. And, and very little content in there. But what, what pays for them is they get a couple of pennies per ad from Google, AdClick, et cetera, because they've attracted human eyeballs to look at the ads. Now, this is not what the advertisers had intended when they put their money to Google, et cetera. But this ad fraud business is a multi-billion dollar revenue stream. You know, it's the old W.C. Fields quote. It's like, I think it was a half the advertising I buy is wasted. The problem is I don't know what half. Yeah. Uh, and these folks are like, well, if you're going to waste money, we're happy to take it from you. So so that is and, and this is a weird way of saying that. That's the least gross thing that might be happening here. Right. Just the most vanilla. obvious, right? The most yeah. obvious. It's clickbait. You click, they get your eyeballs. They flash some ads in front of you. They get paid for those. They get some revenue out of those ads. End of story. I mean, in some ways, harm done to the people who are being uh, exposed, you know, the people, the harm done to the Mary Bergs, but, but, but not, you're right. Not nothing, yeah. nothing more nefarious than that. Yeah. Now, stage two. And we saw this with the the, uh, the Freedom Convoy, some of the Facebook pages that were hijacked. And, and while some of these were certainly, if not direct Russian influence operations, some were, uh, others inspired by uh, those kind of things, still yet others were literally run by um, crappy T-shirt hat maker uh, merchants, merch from uh, East Asia, who saw an opportunity to sell their wares um, to, uh, I guess, productize or George Lucas, the uh, the merch side of civil unrest and, and civil strife within Canada. Um, so they amplified our discord as a society so they could sell more t-shirts. Now that's slightly more gross than the ad fraud, but still not the worst case scenario. Right. I, I suspect we're going get to get to the worst case scenario. Before we get there, though, just so people understand how this works, how is it that all of a sudden your timeline, whether it be on Twitter X uh, or on Facebook or on Instagram, how all of a sudden does it get flooded? Because my accounts were flooded with these ads at a certain point in time. How does that happen? Well, so first, the uh, what you need to understand is that when it comes to social media, you are not the customer. You are the product. Your yes. two eyeballs and Mark One human brain are being packaged and resold as individuals and groups to the advertisers. Right. So at the whim of people willing to stuff cash into Facebook and Twitter's willing hands, 
that's the volume of activity that you will see. And, you know, they, the social media platforms get super excited when lots of ads are being bought targeting the same people because then they can raise the rates they charge for the eyeballs because they fine tune and they understand to a millisecond how much human attention they can steal from us and make no mistake, their goal, like the tobacco companies, is to hook you as long as they can on things that are not good for you that make them money. Right. So if the, if the they, product is they, free, if, if, yeah, if the, if the item is free, if the platform is free, the product is you. I've always been told that. You yeah. got it. So, so the wave here is an interesting question. Why now? And who benefits? Now, if you're thinking, well, the economy has been tight, criminals have been hit, law enforcement's getting better, uh, it's harder to make their money. So maybe organized crime is diversifying some of its revenue streams. It's it's just needs to make more money. Hey, they, they, they've had rising cost of living too. So, you know, it's got to spend money to make money and this seems to be a good train. So yeah. maybe it's that. Maybe and advertising is down on X too. We know that. So maybe it's, you know, there's there's more room for, for clutter than there used to be. But yeah, these are all just sort of straws, right? Exactly. And the rates may have dropped. So mainly the criminal goes, hey, listen, we actually have pretty sophisticated Excel spreadsheet business models for which crime pays the most. FYI, although police say crime does not pay, it yes. does pay a lot of people. Um, and so they figured this out and this makes sense to do. And that's the least worrying story that yeah, I have fraud to tell you. David Chipley, CEO and co-founder of Boceron Security, a cybersecurity software firm, is with us this half hour. We're talking about, I don't know if you've seen a lot of these ads on different social media platforms, in my case, mostly on what used to be called Twitter. They're kind of, they look like news stories. They tend to be salacious, or at least pretend to be salacious, these splashy headlines about people, sort of stars, Howie Mandel, Michael Buble, uh, Mary Berg, who you may know, um, Ian Hannah Mansing, the anchor has been in there, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau is a popular one. And it sort of suggests that if you click, you're going to read some kind of very salacious article about them. Well, of course, it's not true. There is no truth behind what uh, what the claims are. However, once you've clicked, you're in, right? And we've been talking about why, why that is. David, one of the things that always struck me is they're using sort of recognized logos. They're using recognized faces, people, real people's names. How can this possibly be, not be illegal? Well, so what's interesting in, and I'll use the U.S. because they've got a more clear-cut law that basically treats social media platforms like they're telephone companies. Now, pause. You're like, right. what do you mean, like they're telephone companies? Well, the U.S. passed laws that basically said you're not responsible for the content on your website like a telephone carrier is not responsible for what David Shipley right. says to somebody else in a phone call. You're, you're not just the transmission. Company. You're just the transmission vehicle. Right. Just We're just the pipelines, mm -hmm. folks. Um, you know, maybe it's a beer tap pipeline. Maybe it's a sewage pipeline, but we're just <laughs> the pipelines. So with that, they have absolutely no responsibility. But um, like, like an evil version of Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility, they have greatly gobbled up all the ad money from radio stations, television stations, newspapers. Yes, we used to print news in paper form and send it. I was a delivery boy as my first job. So is mine. Yeah, there we go. They, yes. They took all the money and none of the accountability. Because back in the day, if you saw a sketchy ad in your newspaper, you picked up the phone, you called the newspaper, and you're like, what are you doing? 
and they yeah. would they'd be accountable and responsible to at least their subscribers because the subscribers paid for the product to their advertisers because their advertisers would not want to be accountable to that because they were still small enough. They weren't the Godzilla that Facebook is. Try not getting Godzilla's attention if you catch fraud. Um, and so they don't care. And in fact, they have gutted their fraud team. So when Elon came in and took the proverbial sledgehammer to the side of the head of Twitter uh, and gutted all of their compliance teams, every other tech CEO with say social media platforms went, that's a great way to make more money. I'm going to go get my sledgehammer too. And so uh, they're all bilking it. And, and, and we're heading into a presidential election cycle where they've decimated the fraud team and everyone's going, wow, this is going to be so much fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this could be much more widespread than the kind of ads. Or the, as you pointed, this is sort of the canary pointed out. This is the canary in the coal mine when it comes to stuff like this. But then again, so I, I understand that people who have seen themselves in these ads have, have had recourse or at least asked for them to be taken down. And in some cases they are. You can, as a user, you can block them or try to at least. But it's not in of itself. Um, it doesn't, in of itself, there's no clear cut rule that says you can't post these ads. Well, exactly. So, so uh, ideally, if I'm Mary Berg, poor Mary Berg, yes, poor Mary. Uh, it, it, I should be able to sue the ever living pants off Facebook for profiting off of defamation involving my character, or certainly the abuse of my visage, my my artistic property, my copyright. Maybe there's a play in that. Not a lawyer. Um, I can literally hear lawyers' heads probably exploding. Yeah. But, but yeah. defamation of character is, is probably a tangible one. This is why we need new laws that hold social media companies accountable and, and in Canada. Now, the, the problem is we can't seem to have an adult conversation about regulating social media without the my freedom crowd yeah. um, coming out or the, the absolute uh, free speech advocates and conspiracy theorists, et cetera. And God help us if we can't rein that in and have a mature conversation. But Facebook is a publisher. And, and if they knowingly allow fraud to happen at scale like this, which it harms individuals and others, they should be fined. And they should be liable to folks that they uh, grossly abuse the reputations of. And then they'd have to invest in those fraud and safety teams. And we'd start breaking out of the cycle of terribleness we're in right now. You mentioned before that there is a worst case scenario here. So ad fraud is one of them. They're just getting you to click. It's salacious. You click. It's clickbait. And then they make money off the fact that you you have that their eyeball, your eyeballs are looking at their ads. Um, you mentioned, of course, that there could be other ones just about selling a product. So you click through and then you're offered some product. That makes some kind of sense too. What's the worst, what's the worst case scenario then uh, of so what's going on here? Yeah. So, so mid worst case is they get you to click on a link and it's loaded with malware and your right. iPhone, your computer, et cetera, gets hijacked. They steal credentials. They commit financial fraud, identity theft, et cetera. And that's not even the worst. Right. <laughs> it sucks. It's terrible for the individuals affected. And you better hope your antivirus is up to date. By the way, free advice today. Keep your stuff patched. The internet's a very dirty place. It's like diving into a, a public pool after all the toddlers have been in there. Like, right. Careful. Uh, the the last place is all about this this ongoing challenge of misinformation and disinformation. And this stuff is clever. We learned in 2016, which is literally almost like a lifetime ago in the way the internet now works and, and the way that we evolve or devolve politically, that in 2016, the lead up to Donald Trump, the Russians actually, through their internet research farm, created a whole bunch of conservative Christian websites. Now, for the first year of these things lives, 
they were just relatively innocuous chapter and verse, this content, no big deal. As the election heats up, oh, do they ever start taking on an anti-Biden zeal, right? And so they build an audience, they get that presence, they build trust, and away they go. Right, or yeah, the anti-Clinton zeal, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. You got it. What they're doing with these is they're is they're taking the McDonald's approach to the seven course meal of 2016 of building an audience, et cetera. And like, listen, we can do this faster, cheaper with clickbait, get your eyeballs. The next thing you know, you're on a page talking about a crypto investment, but God help you. President Biden is preventing this and President Trump would be amazing. Or maybe President uh, Biden eats babies. And there's a right. percentage of the population that's going to believe that particular thing. For the record, he does not eat babies. Right. So a, ga- a gateway to something something worse down the line, if it begins uh, to heat up. I mean, I will admit that they're very well done. I mean, in terms of the, the clickbaitability of them, they're written in a way that even someone in, you know, they really pique your curiosity, right? So that that's the, uh, I guess the advice then to users is, is just don't click. I mean, sometimes it can be hard to recognize one from the real thing, but if you recognize it, just, just don't click. Well, the biggest thing is, is first try and remember the, I'm a, I'm an amateur neuroscientist. So there's the, we talked about the neocortex, but this, what I just learned this year is that implies there's a new brain, which also means there's an old brain. The old brain is the emotional driven brain. Right. It's flight or it, fight, it is, fight or flight. Way, yeah. Yeah. It is the original pilot. The new brain is only the co-pilot. It takes complete control. It's where the emotions live. The moment you see something that makes you really excited, really scared, really curious, be really careful because you're getting played. Indeed. Nine times out of 10, uh, trusted media organizations or trusted news sources will actually tell you what the allegation is in the headline on the on the actual post. If they don't, if it's some salacious thing that makes you have to click to read, chances are you're, you're probably not in a great spot. David, thanks so much. You're very welcome. When is the last time you mailed a letter? Physically put a stamp on something and put it in the mailbox. How many pieces of mail do you get each week? I mean, chances are far fewer than you did a decade ago and a fraction of what you might have gotten 25, 30 years ago. And that is is a big problem for postal services in many countries. For example, in Britain, the Royal Mail, this came out this week, could be allowed to deliver letters just three days per week under a series of options outlined by the industry regulator to help the company run a sustainable service. Letter volumes there have halved since 2011. Here's the head of the regulator called Ofcom, Dame Melanie Dobbs. We're increasingly sending things by email or by text or by WhatsApp messages. Uh, So we need that service to be there when we need it. But if we want it to be sustainable and affordable, I think we're going to have to accept some change. We don't think that doing nothing is an option here. Now, Canada Post, needless to say, faces exactly the same kind of dilemma. Um, The number of pieces of mail being delivered or sent is collapsing by about 6 to 8% per year. This was really their bread and butter, a bit like, think of it, a bit like classified ads in newspapers. This was heavy volume, light, and relatively expensive. Uh, my next guest points out they made about 50% profit on a letter mailed, Canada Post did. So that's gone, or it's dwindling at this point. Uh, they've lost, they lost more than half a billion dollars in 2022. They have recently announced plans to sell their in-house IT business to Deloitte. It's called Innova Post, and they're also looking to sell their 3,000-person logistics company, Canada Post, that is. But is it enough to turn the tide? Will we also see something like mail delivery reduced here? What about the future of Canada Post? I mean, it's still important in many ways, but is it sustainable? Uh, Ian Lee has worked a lot on this topic. Uh, he's an associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton in Ottawa. Ian, thank you. My pleasure, Ben. 
This is an interesting one because I think a lot of us in Canada have sort of this strange loyalty to Canada Post. We think yes. of it as being something pretty important in our culture. But if if you look, yeah. red is not only the color we associate with Canada Post, it's also the number that, that sort of the color that seems to be spread all over their balance sheet these days. You're right. I did my uh, PhD thesis 30 years ago, defended in 89, 850 pages, by the way. Wow. Uh, because what I did is I went back to the origins. It was set up by the Royal Mail in 1760 uh, in British North America. And I'm not going to give you the history, I promise you. So I wrote it, took it down to 1989. And I asked a simple question. Why on earth was the government in the postal business? And when, you know, other countries, some got the countries, it was in private sector. So anyways, I developed a, a, a theory that was very interesting, I think, to you as a, as a journalist or any political scientist. I argued that for the first 200 years or so, it was the only communication system in Canada. It was the internet, the telephone, the telegraph, uh, the CBC, radio. It was everything all in one. So it was in a profound instrument of nation building. And then I argued in the thesis that the CBC's establishment in 1935 displaced the post office because they, the politicians and the leadership had a newer, shinier, much more efficient, instantaneous um, uh, communications tool called the CBC that went coast to coast to coast. So I said the post office had to reinvent itself at that time. And fortunately, they, what came along was the post-war explosion economy. And then the post office became the partner of the market economy and right. capturing that famous phrase, the check is in the mail. Every business would send out invoices in the mail. Every debtor customer would send their check in the mail. Every bank utility statement, every visa statement, every bank checking statement went in the mail. And you could even see it when there were postal strikes in the 60s and 70s. You could see the abrupt disruption to GDP because the payment system would collapse. Yeah, running That's to the all. mailbox. I'm old enough to remember running to the mailbox. I mean, exactly. it, it seems so antiquated now. And then there was this disruptive innovation. The um, It wasn't the internet, which was in 68. It was the browser of 1995 that made the internet commercial and commercializable. Right. And there was this character called Jeff Bezos who understood before anybody the unbelievably disruptive revolutionary impact of the net everyone thought he was forming a bookstore and he if you read his comments at the time no 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 it's not a bookstore it's about digitizing anything that is informational a video a, a newspaper um, a book anything that was informational that could be digitized from atoms into bits we're going to do it and he did so yeah. I dated the decline of the post office from 2006 because in the audited annual report, it shows the number of pieces. That was the high watermark. Every year since 2006, the number of pieces of mail has declined from a high of five and a half billion pieces in 2006 to two billion today. And it's declining at 8% a year, nonstop, year after year. Young people don't write dear old grandmama letters. No. They so listeners understand the business model then, because people think, oh, well, what about packaging? What about, you know, I'll what about there. all these packages that go around these days? Isn't Canada Post replacing some of that lost income on what we would call snail mail through all this boom in, in e-commerce? But clearly the snail mail still is a big part of the bottom line. The snail mail is a big part, but it's I predict it's going to be gone in six years by 2030 by extrapolating from the current trends. It's right. going to be gone for all intents and purposes. In the 2015 study that I wrote for McDonald Laurie Institute called, Is the Check Still in the Mail? I argued in there, and I wasn't being trying to be profound. The CEO of the time of the Canada Post was saying the same thing. The only thing that's going to save the post office is to become a partner 
of e-commerce and say, look, yeah, you companies out there want to ship your stuff. We are the guy to ship. And for a while it worked. Their parcel shippings went up, up, up. But starting about three years ago, around the time of the pandemic, their parcels started to go down. So I'm doing further research right now as we speak. And I contacted people in the business. Uh, they are obviously off the record because that's the way they are. I was told by people I trust and rely, they said they estimate that the cost of that postal truck you see everywhere on the streets of Canada, Victoria, is about approximately $60 Canadian per hour for the truck, the fuel, and the driver. I said, okay, so far so good. What about FedEx, big competitor? Well, they're about $40 an hour, right. truck, the driver, and the fuel. I said, well, what about the Intel comms? These are these little gig workers who drive their own car and drop off parcels at my front door on Friday night at 10 o'clock. Believe me, because I do buy from, Econ from Amazon. These little gig delivery services like Intelcom, $25. E-commerce is exploding. Huge opportunity for Canada Post, but they're completely uncompetitive. They're going to have to have a profound coming to Jesus moment and say, we can't compete at 60 bucks an hour. Cup W is completely resistant, and I'm not trashing Cup W. I understand why, but right now the Canada Post doesn't deliver on the weekends because the collective agreement calls for double time on the weekends. Well, at 60 right. bucks, they're not even remotely competitive. So there is a future if they reorganize and restructure Canada Post, but it's going to be very, very painful. And what's it, what's the bottom line looking like these days? We can talk about what they're selling off, but what's the bottom line? I mean, literally, what's the bottom line looking like for Canada Post they're in 2024? Money, and even that, um, and I believe me, I've looked at the financials. I'm a former banker from way back in time. Um, Canada Post has been losing money, but it's much worse than what we think because the government under Harper and continued under Trudeau, so I'm blaming them both, suspended their pension payments because they're so broke uh, that they suspended them. So the pension deficit is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but it's a false uh, savings because they, they're, it's money they're, they don't have to transfer from operations into the pension to make their profitability look better. Even so, they're losing money. This year, they're going to lose. I'll have to look it up again. I think it's a little over $2 billion. That's a lot of the money. Point, the point is, is that the, the letter mail, which was their core business forever, and their profit margin, according to Deloitte for the Blue Ribbon Panel that Trudeau appointed in 2017, their profit margin on letters is about 50%. Profit margin on parcels is 25%. But letter mail is collapsing and vanishing. It's going the way of the right. dodo bird. Ian Lee is with us, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton. We're talking about the future of Canada Post, which Ian has looked into for years now. He's mentioning he wrote his PhD thesis on this uh, in 1989, which was it, which to me doesn't feel that long ago, but obviously, I mean, I graduated that year as well, so it feels like we go back a while. I mean, we've seen now Canada Post starting to sell off its components, right? I mean, there's been a couple of yeah. deals recently in logistics and IT. Is that is that a fire? What's happening? Is that is that a good news? Is that good news or bad news? Well, it's good news because of the bad news. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean by that, the post office's foundation of business is dissolving underneath its feet. And uh, and they know that because this is in the for those who say this is Ian Lee's opinion. All of these numbers I'm quoting are from the audited annual report year after year. They have three product lines. The biggie forever and ever was letter mail. We all know that. And it's collapsing. The second was parcels and it's declining. And the third one, which, by the way, although it's declining, it's not doing that badly. 
is so uh, direct mail or what all of us call junk mail. Right. Surprisingly, there's a good market out there for junk mail. Yeah, it's, it's hung all- on. It's hung on in, in this digital age junk mail. There I still are get, I still get studies lots of it. galore showing that we consumers respond more favorably to a physical piece of junk mail than we do to junk mail in our inbox. For some reason, we really distrust uh, electronic uh, junk mail, but we pay attention to it when it's paper-based. Having said that, their share is going down in that business, but the market is fairly strong. Okay, very quickly. What do they have to do? They cannot rely on letter mail because in five, six, seven, eight years, it's going to be gone. So that leaves them two markets, parcels and direct mail. I think they have a fighting chance in direct mail because they have a distribution system of 16 million households in Canada, which is what mail wants to have. So they do have a mini, let's call it a mini competitive advantage. In parcels, they should have a competitive advantage, again, because they go to 16 million addresses. The problem is they're not even remotely, remotely competitive with the private competitors. So they have to restructure big time and downsize because you don't need 60,000 people uh, going to deliver parcels because you have that 60,000 people because you're going out five times a week, 52 weeks a year to 16 million addresses. You don't deliver parcels five days a week. You only deliver the parcel when a parcel comes in to deliver. No, you know, I was reading, of course, the Royal Mail in Britain's habit, of, of which was sort of the, the grandfather of our Canada Post or grandparent, yes. I should say, yes. uh, that yes. they're looking now. I mean, they, they were doing a more consistent delivery, but they're looking now at five or even three days a week for mail delivery. I suppose that's another option for Canada, too. I, I mean, they can't yes. continue on this way, right? Clearly. No, it's not sustainable. To use that modern word, it's not, they're going to have to do things like... Yes, going to three days a week. I testified before the Blue Ribbon Panel in 2017 that Mr. Trudeau set up. I said, you've got to do that. I said, you got to franchise all your post offices because shoppers and Loblaws love that because it's foot traffic that pulls people into the store and then hopefully you buy all that other stuff that shoppers and Loblaws sells. So they are keen to franchise. And we, the, the, they're losing money on every post office in the country. So get rid of the post offices and franchise them. Go to three-day mail a week. Thirdly, sit down and have a very deep, deep conversation with Cub W and say, guys, you know, we're going to disappear because the taxpayers will not support what I called in the Globe and Mail op-ed a Potemkin post office where you have 50,000 people marching up and down the streets of Canada five days a week, 52 weeks a year to 16 million addresses with nothing to deliver. It's a Potemkin post office. So they're going to have to say, look, we'd rather have a smaller post office that is viable than wait until the whole post office is closed down. Because that, I believe, is the choice facing everybody. It does. I mean, the machinations of that, though, because there will be a nostalgia for it, no matter what. There is. Right? There is, um, there is. So that that politically is going to be a difficult decision, one would think, uh, to pull the plug. But Can but I you're throw right, one more know. thought at you, Ben? Sure, though, of course. Because on top of all these cross-cutting issues we've been talking about, we haven't really talked about the generational issue. When I bring up the post office in my class to my 22 and 23 and oh, 24, yeah. <laughs> they laugh at me. They laugh at me. You know what they call the post office? That's my grandmother's company. Yes, yes, older I, I, yes. people are dying off. I'm putting really crass. Us older folks are dying off. And, and they're the strongest supporters of the post office. Young people couldn't care less about the post office. Yeah, they don't get mail. They don't send mail. They don't get packages. They're the most digital generation in the world. So there's going to be a lag from the death of the post office until 
public opinion supports getting rid of the post office. And it's going to be that that older generation, boomers and above, that have all these nostalgic memories uh, from their youth of the post office that the younger generation, the Gen Xs, the Gen Zs, and the millennials do not possess. Yeah, the Gen Xers like myself have a sort of a mixed one, right? Because we're kind of in the middle. Uh, I, I suppose, I mean, the time is now then for Canada Post. If it's going to make any of these changes that you suggested better better now, it, it's going to be too late if they don't do it, if they if they don't That's do it right view. away. Yeah, That is my view because e-commerce, and I, 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 I've got the numbers for e-commerce, in China it's exploding, in Europe it's exploding, in America and in Canada. More and more and more consumers are buying more and more stuff. So the opportunity is there. The problem is they don't have a monopoly for parcels, unlike letter mail. The Post Office Act of Canada, like the Royal Mail Act of UK, gave a monopoly over letter mail. They did never got a monopoly over parcel posts. So now they're competing with ferocious, nimble, aggressive, hungry competitors. And Canada Post is set up as a state-owned monopoly. And it still is acting like a state-owned monopoly. And it's got to become a much more nimble, dynamic innovative company to respond to the competitive threats in the parcel post market. Well, nimble is not something one usually one usually associates with a crowd corporation. Ian, thank you so much uh, for your for your info on this. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you. I have sent for you, Dodgers, because we are facing a crisis. The world supply of alludium Fosdex, the shaving cream atom, is alarmingly low. Now, we have reason to believe that the only remaining source is on Planet X, somewhere in this area. And you want me to find Planet X? Is that it? Can you do it, Dodgers? Oh, indubitably, sir. Because there's no one knows his way around outer space like the Dodgers in the 24th and a half century! Yeah. Daffy Duck is Duck Dodgers. I was trying to think back to my earliest memories of having space represented, what space could look like represented for me in a way that sparked, you know, piqued the imagination. That was it. For me, it was Marvin the Martian and especially Duck. I love Duck Dodgers, by the way. I always liked Daffy Duck. So for me, that opened up this whole world of what could space look like? Is there such a thing as a Marvin the Martian? Can you add water and make Martians? You know, the whole the way that gravity worked in the Bugs Bunny cartoons was remarkable. The storylines were remarkable. So that was the one that really piqued my interest as a kid uh, about is there any is there any is there anything out there, right? I mean it's the eternal question. There are lots of others. Obviously Star Trek, Star Wars. I saw Star Wars the first Star Wars in the theaters. Battlestar Galactica, you know the late 70s was a great time for those space movies. Spaceballs and then the list goes on and on and on and on and on. There were many. Um but there are so few things that capture our imagination quite the way that the vast unknowns above us every time we look into a night sky do. I mean, space has always been the final frontier. I, I hate to sound so cliched. One thing we perhaps don't think of very often, though, is how much fiction and science fiction actually creates a bit of a circular relationship with our thoughts about space and the people who actually work in space exploration and in sort of figuring out what's out there. Sometimes real-life space exploration is reflected in our movies and books, of course, obviously, but sometimes fictional visions of space exploration influence the real thing. Famously, as it's put, the automatic automatic doors on Star Trek's original Enterprise are predated and some fans say inspired their real-life counterparts. What can the cult classic 1956 Forbidden Planet, for instance, tell us about exoplanets? Imagine yourself as one of the crew of this faster-than-light spaceship of the future. 
sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Sir, we're being radar scanned. United Planets Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Well, Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair IV. Commander, if you sat down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. Yeah, that sounds ominous, doesn't it? But it does can tell us something uh, about about what's out there, what we think is out there. Um, and there are many other subjects that uh, that can be touched on this way, from space exploration, from astronauts in spacesuits, isolation in space, living on Mars, communicating with aliens. How about what Starship Troopers can tell us about giant aliens living on other planets? In every age, there is a cause worth fighting for. But in the future, the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all. What's going on? It's war! We're going to war! Now the youth of tomorrow must travel across the stars to defend our world. We are a generation commanded by fate to defend humankind. Everyone fights, no one quits. There you have it. Of course, Starship Trooper is one of the classics. Ariel Waldman is with us. She's an explorer and filmmaker, and her book is called Out There, the science behind sci-fi film and TV. These are the questions that she explores in this great little book. Ariel, thank you for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, how did you come up with this idea? I mean, I read through the whole thing and I thought, wow, I never really thought of the of the symbiosis. <laughs> that's a that's a, not the word I should use. Just the, the connection between sci-fi and the real thing. Yeah, I mean, it started for me Several, several years ago, I used to have a column on Engadget that would evaluate all of the cool technology and science fiction and try and see what it would be like if it was actually something that existed today. And that later morphed into a show that I had on Adam Savage's Tested called Offworld, where we were exploring all things uh, space exploration and pop culture and I would bring in guests to talk about these different topics of like, you know, getting scientists to talk about like, well, could giant bugs exist on an alien planet? And if so, how would that work? What would they need, um, you know, in the case of Starship Troopers? And so I had all these amazing conversations. But of course, when the pandemic happened, that show, you know, stopped. And so I wanted to really take a lot of the conversations I had there and have more conversations with scientists and um sci-fi authors and, and people working in film to talk about these really cool things um, that are inspired by science fiction or uh, the other way around. Yeah, I, I was not that I was surprised that scientists who do this, you know, who say, let's, let's call it the real thing, uh, talk about being inspired by, by, by what has been written or filmed or people's ideas of what's out there. But of course, it, I mean, they watch all the same stuff we do. I was interviewing some this, someone this week who became a roboticist because he was a huge fan of sci-fi as a kid. Absolutely. And uh, Contact, uh, the movie that came out, I believe, in 1997, that was all about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That inspired a whole generation of women to get into astrophysics and astronomy. Um, and so they absolutely are, are a starting point for a lot of scientists. 
One thing I found interesting, you sort of start off the book by talking about a movie that I had to watch in a history of French cinema class. Yes, I took all the tough ones at McGill uh, called George Milius, is a movie called A Trip to the Moon, which I think was made in 1902, which is actually a year before the Wright brothers. So in the movie, mm-hmm. it's a silent 12-minute movie. The crew is fired in a bullet sort of to uh, to the moon. I guess they couldn't conceive of, of a rocket or anything like that. And yet you point mm-hmm. out that even Milius, who couldn't have known much, at the time, got some things right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, A Trip to the Moon, if, if if anyone's listening to this and hasn't watched it, go to YouTube, look up A Trip to the Moon. It will be on there. It's an amazing thing. It was made in 1902, as you said. And, yeah, they got some things right, like, you know, that you would need something like a bullet going to the moon uh, in order to get there. Um, you know, we really didn't have the capacity to fully imagine what it would take to go to the moon until – really the 1940s kicked off with the advent of missiles. But the things that this uh, movie got right were the fact that there are actually caves on the moon. They're not full of mushrooms, as we see in the film, but but there's yeah. caves, there's lunar caves, and, and there, it's still an area that we need to actually explore. Yeah, there's a famous scene in that movie with the the moon has the bullet in its eye, right? It's the man in the moon, which is, uh, which is yeah, it's only 12 minutes long, by the way. You don't have to commit a ton of time to it. I watched it again last night. It's great. What are some other good examples? I mean, you point out many in in the book itself, just across across a wide spectrum of subjects, from isolation in space to the to the spacesuit itself, and and the design of them, and how that's been sort of reflected in movies, and how that has sort of created a feedback loop with what we actually see in real life, uh, amongst other things. What are some of the ones that really stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that spacesuit one is is really fascinating because you know I'm a, a personal big fan of the movie Sunshine, or as many people yes. would say, the the first two thirds of the movie is is especially great. Um, and it's really imaginative for spacesuits and needing these sort of disco ball-like spacesuits in order to reflect the sun's energy. Um, but, you know, importantly, like in, in the spacesuit chapter, we get into the fact that, um, you know, in reality, now we've been so saturated with visions of what space exploration is supposed to look like that it's beginning to in- infiltrate now, you know, SpaceX and Boeing the spacesuits that they're producing are really inspired by 2001 A Space Odyssey. And so now we're in this weird feedback loop where actually a lot of our imagination feels a little bit constrained in real life because we're so used to like, well, this is what the future is supposed to look like because this is, you know, this iconic classic movie that we're all aware of. Um, And so it, I think science fiction, especially, and and something I try to dive into in the book, is something that should really be showcasing absolutely a diversity of thought and imagination so that we don't get into any feedback loop where we think the future is supposed to look a certain way. Funny that you put it that way, because I guess in some ways, uh, science fiction can really open new worlds and, and new ideas about what's out there, including giant bugs, for instance. And yet, in other mm-hmm. ways, it can be a bit. It can be a bit. Uh, it can be a constraint because you're right. We do have this idea that a spacesuit is supposed to look a certain way. And if you were to come up with something that looked nothing like it, I mean, there's only so many ways. I suppose you could you could you know do that. But uh, that being said, I mean, they've, you point this out as well. They were always the always in the, especially in the 80s, notoriously not made for women, right? I mean, they were not inclusive mm-hmm. spacesuits. Uh, you know, the, you're mm-hmm. right. They We've been kind of constrained in some ways by the way we think a, a spacesuit should look. 
Yeah, and sometimes that can constrain just uh, even, you know, how we think about exploration. So, you know, a totally different example that I also talk about in the book is, is with asteroids. We're pretty used to seeing asteroids and Star Wars and Star Trek, and they always look kind of the same. You know, maybe they're <laughs> a little bit more jagged or a little bit more brown. And it's like, well, how interesting can asteroids be? They're just rocks in space. But the reality of asteroids that we're learning through current space probes is that asteroids can be more like, you know, rubble piles that are loosely held together that more have a density of like styrofoam that you couldn't even land on if you tried because they're just so loosely held together. And there's just these interesting things about space exploration that we're still learning today. And unless we see those things, you know, begin to get represented in in science fiction as well, I think, you know, it can it can constrain us a little bit. So I think there's a lot of examples in the book about uh, amazing pieces of work and, and art that have happened over the past few decades that are really expanding our view more um, and, and ones in which we take sort of a more critical look at and, and see, you know, is this is this there all there is to explore? GPS is down. I can't. It's down. I can't. Ah. Give me a visual. Ah. I told you nothing. I see nothing. You have a visual of explorer. No. Sandra Bullock there in Gravity. That was quite the movie. When you think about those movies, the, the one of the ones that are, is the most terrifying. Forget space bugs and it's being caught. It's being lost in space. It's essentially there's. Uh, it's being stranded in space. Right. The idea of of just being lost out there has always been one of the most terrifying things I think that uh, that we've been able to conjure up when it comes to these sorts of things. Of course, that's happened in real life. Ariel Waldman is with us, explorer, filmmaker, author of Out There: The Science Behind Sci-Fi Film and TV. Ariel, I mean, I guess gravity you brought up in terms of of isolation in space and how we look at that as well, and that's always been an interesting topic because I think when we think of space exploration, that's the scary part. It's getting lost, being abandoned out there, and floating into nothingness. Yeah, it's uh, isolation in space is, is an interesting topic because, you know, there's different aspects of it to think about. You know, there's, you know, isolation if you're like on Mars. And so you have like a little bit of a uh, time delay with Earth. But then there's isolation like where you're just really even more cut off than Mars. Um, and I think we're going to have to be thinking about different ways in which humans can maintain not feeling so lonely in space uh, in, in these different modes. And it's something that in the book, you know, I talk about um, my work in Antarctica and, and being isolated there and how that can sort of relate a bit to uh, learning how we can cope in space. And, and indeed, uh, scientists and, and one of the scientists I interview for this, uh, Mika McKinnon, uh, she is a uh, geophysicist who does a lot of isolated field work for her uh, science. And there's so many different aspects that come up, um, even here on Earth, for how to combat loneliness. One of the ones that she mentions is, you know, um, having actually a, a plant or something to take care of um, is is actually really important uh, for allowing yourself to not get too lonely, to feel like you're useful. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you mentioned, I think Wally comes up in that section as well, needless to say. Um, I was reading today that NASA's um, Mars robot helicopter Ingenuity is, is sort of being put to rest. You do do a section on Mars. and mm-hmm. Mars has always had a certain fascination. I was talking about 
Marvin the Martian earlier and, you know, like, uh, you know, all the different Martian movies that have been around uh, over the many, many years. You also touch on that subject because that's been, because we may end up back there, probably not in our life. I mean, I won't put this on you, probably not in my lifetime, but we will be there mm-hmm. perhaps eventually in a not, not too distant future. And so we're really going to see whether, I mean, we already know to some extent, but it's amazing how much Mars has captured the imagination, how much we've written about it, and now how much we're actually seeing about it. Yeah, it's something that is interesting. Certainly in my work with uh, NASA and the National Academies, I feel like my my understanding of, of our future on Mars is that technically it could happen during my lifetime that someone lands, actually puts their feet on the Mar- Martian surface. Uh, but if it happens, it will be a huge, huge undertaking that we've never done before in terms of international collaboration and political will and, and funding and whatnot. And so in the book, I wanted to push it a little bit further beyond what might be my lifetime or or close to it and talk about farming on Mars. You know, how are we going to be able to sustain ourselves there, Um, not through terraforming like the whole planet or something that far out, but something that's more about, um, you know, can can we use mushrooms to grow, you know, architecture for ourselves? Can we farm in a way that doesn't totally destroy the planet that's there. Um, and yeah, it's a really interesting subject. Um, and again, it's something where there's a lot of analogs to certain places in Antarctica that I study that are just very Mars-like and, and the soil is so harsh and so difficult to uh, have any t- sort of life in that um, it, it really uh, makes you think about how much creativity is needed to make it happen. Yeah, well, Ariel, I really enjoyed enjoyed the book. Speaking of creativity, I really enjoyed the idea and the book. Congratulations. I hope it's a huge success. Thanks for your time tonight. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. He is one of the biggest names in Canadian country music and has been now for for many years, for many years, all the way through the 21st century, more or less. Um, Kitimat's Kinemat BC's Aaron Pritchett has racked up more than 30 Juno, CCMA, WCMA, BCCMA nominations over the years, including multiple wins for Entertainer of the Year, Male Vocalist of the Year, and a CCMA SOCAN Songwriter of the Year Award. That's always a big one. Um, How he got his start is a great story in of itself because it involves karaoke, his mom, and a song that no one should ever sing at karaoke. But I'll let him tell the story. for many years, he worked the bar circuit right across BC and beyond, mostly in Alberta and BC. But it all culminated in winning a singing contest called Project Discovery, uh, sponsored by Country Music Television about 20 years ago. And the rest is now history. Since then, he's racked up 13 top 10 hits, including one you, a bunch you, you'll know when you hear them. Hold My Beer, Worth a Shot, Warm Safe Place, Dirt Road in Them, Better When I Do. Uh, and so on. It's been a while since he's put out mu- new music, but that's changing. It's also been a while since he's hit the road. That's also changing. There's a new song out alongside Matt Lang and Cody Marks called Liquored Up. Here's a, here's just a taste of it. This week has been a total write-off. I haven't even had a single day or night off. I had to find me a bar where the jukebox plays. kid with 
There you have it. Liquor it up. It's the first new song from Aaron Prochet in quite a while. He teams up there with Matty Lang and with Matt Lang and Cody Marks uh, for that. And those three are heading out on tour as well. They're going to be traveling right across the country. Lots of stops in BC. Lots of stops in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, even Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes. It all begins in Calgary on Saturday night over the next forty days or so, from uh, January twenty seventh right through to sort of that first week of March. There may be other dates thrown in there as well. We'll see. Uh, but it's my pleasure to welcome Aaron Prichette to the show now. Thank you so much uh, for your time tonight. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ben. Well, congratulations on the new record uh, and uh, heading out on tour. That all kicks off this weekend. You know, we're about the same age. That's an awfully ambitious uh, <laughs> tour tour schedule for uh, for anybody, I'd say. But wow, it's, uh, it's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting, especially because it's been five years since right. the last tour, which feels like it was last year. But a lot of uh, a lot of strange things have happened in that time and have made time pass by very, very fast. So, yeah, I'm, I'm beyond excited to get back on the road. Yes. So listeners know, I mean, back in the day, even though when you had your first hits back, you know, I guess it, back to the turn of the century at this point, this century rather, but you used to play a lot. I mean, you played a lot. You, you sort of cut your teeth uh, doing a lot of bar band, a lot of sort of bars and clubs around the country. Mm. So it must be it must be hard not to play for so much for such a long stretch of time. Yeah, it was very strange. I started in the clubs in 1993 and played in the clubs even while having songs on the radio that were doing well uh, in the early 2000s. I played until 2004, five, six, seven nights a week, sometimes five, six sets a night. So you're playing a ton of songs over and over and over again for almost those entire 11 years. And then I got on the road and started touring with uh, with my band. And we did, uh, I mean, sometimes you'd be doing... 120, 130 shows a year, uh, which was a lot. Uh, not as much as the clubs, but it was still a lot because you're traveling now too, and a lot of other uh, a lot of other things going on in between. So, and then all of a sudden, boom, 2020 hits, and that just stops. And it was a shock to everybody, not just myself, but my my entire band and crew, and everybody else's who are touring artists. Um, it was just such a shock to have that happen, and. For me, I'm used to coming home, but then I get to leave again right away and go back on the road and then come home. And that was the repetitive thing that I did for nature for, I don't know, 25, 30 years almost. Most of your adult life. Yeah, most of your adult life. It's amazing when one reads it, when people look at the reviews of of your YouTube videos, um, everyone says, oh, what a great track, you know, crank it up in the car. But almost everyone says you need to see them live. You need to see them live. And there are just some bands that are great. You know, they're great studio bands. And there are some bands who are, people say, well, listen, you really got to go see them live. Well, you know, I've never said I was the greatest singer, songwriter, musician you know, in the world at all. Uh, I definitely try to do my best. But when it comes to entertaining, I like to put myself in a, I set the bar really high that, you know, these people are paying good money to come and watch a show, to be entertained, not just to hear the music, not just to see who the artist is that does these songs, but also put on a show. And I think with this tour, especially this, I've designed this show that it's completely different from anything you've ever seen before. Instead of just having an opener and a uh, direct support for the headliner and then a headliner, I've made it all work all together. So we start the show all of us together and throughout the show we come back and forth and it's it's extremely entertaining and we started off with a bang it burns hot and hotter for you know two hours and then ends with a boom so that's that's what my goal was is to entertain the crowd that's coming and make them want to come back for more 
rock and roll. I mean, it's it's Corey Marks and Matt Lang, right? To, just to be just so that uh, yes. that uh, the audience knows. And you have a new record out. I mean, I, I was watching the video. I think it's been premiered what uh, last week, and it's great. You shot it here on Vancouver Island in a, quite a famous pub in in the Nanaimo area, in, in a place called Cedar, called the Wheat Chief or the Weedy. But it has it has that vibe to it. It must have been. It looked like you had a lot of fun shooting the video. By, by the way. Well, it's pretty obvious in the video. You can tell we had a ton of fun. And you see the outtakes video, too, and shows some things that we did because we were having so much fun and, and getting a little liquored up is what the song is called. Yeah, it was uh, it was shot at the Weedy, the Wheat Chief. Um, a friend of ours owns it. And uh, I said, you know, I, I would love to use your your bar as the, the backdrop for this this video. He said, well, why? I said, because it's perfect. It's got everything. You've got stuffed owls. You've got, you know crazy stuff all over the walls and and the bar itself is perfect so we use that flew Corey Corey Marks from Ontario flew Matt Lang from Quebec uh, just for the day to shoot the video and we got everything we needed within you know several hours at this at this little pub in the middle of nowhere in uh, just south of Nanaimo and yeah it's it's turned into one of my favorite video it was my favorite video shoot by far it looked like yeah it looked like everyone was uh, you can't fake that Right. You can't fake having fun, really. I mean, you can try, but you watch a lot of videos and you can tell no one's really having any fun. They're just sort of <laughs> posing for the camera. This one looked like everyone. This was look. It looked like, yeah, it looked like everyone is a camera caught a, a candid good night out. Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely did. It, it caught all the emotion and the and the fun that we're supposed to be having. And it, originally, when I recorded the song produced by my oldest son, Jordan, he, the entire album's produced by Jordan. And when when we started recording the song, I said, I want it it's got to be like a live feel. He said, well, why don't we just record it live and we'll have the band playing funny instruments instead of being regular instruments. And we did. And it turned out that vibe was, you know, translated onto film with this video that it, it was just a, a blast and a, and a, so much fun to shoot. You talked about, you mentioned at one point that you thought you were worried, somewhat worried about how liquored up would land, right? I mean, hold my beer was kind of your, I just, is the, the first song of yours that I really remember because I, people just used to sing it, used to hear it a lot, right? Uh, and and you know, here we are, you know, I guess, we're, what are we, 20-some-odd years later, nearly 20 years later. And you, you said you were a bit worried about how Liquored Up may land. It's, it's funny to hear artists talk about about thinking, okay, this will be great, and oh, I'm not, you know, I wonder, I wonder. Yeah. Well, in 06, when Hold My Beer was released, nobody had really heard a song that was sort of tongue-in-cheek like that. And, right. you know, it, at first, when that came out, I thought, are people going to be offended by this? Because it's just meant in fun. With Liquored Up, the world is a little more sensitive. Some people were saying, well, you know, it promotes over drinking. But the funny thing is, is that other country songs, especially American artists, can get away with it, whereas Canadian artists just can't. So I didn't want to take that chance and release it to radio and not have it do anything. So I thought, well, let's just let's just release it to the world through DSPs, the uh, digital service providers like Spotify and iTunes and all that. And uh, and shoot a video and have some fun with it and and just get it out there and name the tour after it and and uh, see what kind of things we can generate with it and and it's worked it's worked it is people are saying it is it is the second coming of Hold My Beer which is great so yeah, yeah. what's that? I mean that's an you, you Ray that's interesting I hadn't thought about the differences between Canadian country and and U.S. country in terms of where those lines are sometimes, because yeah. I guess, I mean, I, I guess you're right. Sensibilities are a little bit different here and, and maybe we're a little more, uh, what's the word, a little more patrician that way. Yeah. I think the thing is, is that we look at our Canadian artists that way. We, right. you know, 
in the States, when we receive, when radio receives a, a song from an American artist, they go, well, that's an American artist. That's, you know, the way they, they are, think, or want to portray their music down there. Whereas in Canada, it's like, well, these are one of ours and we don't want to overstep any boundaries. And we're going to, you know, we're going to kind of play it safe. And I've noticed that over the last 30 years, I've been releasing music that this is the case. And that's, that's fine. I, I get it. And I, I, I play by the rules and I, I walk the line. Uh, but at the same time, there could be a bit of a double standard, but without being an offensive, it's not an offensive way. It's more of a protective way. And I, I, I get that. Aaron Perchette, uh, the country singer uh, of many, many years, the multiple award winner in this country, uh, has a new song out called Liquored Up. He's heading out on tour. He'll be hitting a bunch of places, beginning in Calgary uh, on Saturday night. Uh, he's uh, touring with Corey Marks and Matt Lang, who also feature uh, on the song as well. We're talking about, uh, well, we're talking about a, a, bunch, a whole bunch of stuff. I was, you, you tell this fantastic story about getting your start, you're getting, singing for the first time and, and how your mom made you get up at a karaoke bar. And I thought that has to be one of the coolest origin stories. I mean, I'm sure it's not, you're not the only one, but what a great story. Well, we went to a karaoke back in uh, 1991. Karaoke was brand new. And my sister wanted to go because she was the singer in, in the family. And she wanted to go try this new karaoke thing out. So my mom came and my I was married at the time. My wife and I went and I didn't sing. I sang in the shower and I loved to sing, but I didn't think I could sing. And my mom said, why don't you get up and sing a song? And I was like, no, I don't know. I resisted. And she said, please just do it for me. There's nobody in this bar. It was the Clydesdale pub in, in Cloverdale, B.C., so I was like, okay, and I'm all nervous, and I get up there, and I choose probably the toughest song you could ever think of, uh, Waiting for a Girl Like You from Florida. Lou Graham's like oh, an yeah. opera singer. I'm yeah, Waiting for a Girl Like You. Yeah. And I, I didn't know what I was doing, so I just went up there and sang it, and you know, I was shaking so violently when I got back to the seat because I was so nervous and scared. And then the guy who was running the karaoke came up, and he said, he was a British guy named uh, Marshall Spooner, really great guy. What a, said, what a great yeah, name. What a great name. And he said, uh, would you like to work for me? And I said, what? Just looked at him stunned and said, doing what? And he said, I want you to do these shows. And I thought he meant like help him with his gear up to his car every night kind of thing. And he said, no, I want you to run these shows. You're a really good singer. And it was funny because I was sitting there shocked that he's saying this. And my sister's looking at I was going to say, what did your sister say? What did your sister say? so upset. Uh, she's a great singer too and still is. Day, but uh, it all started there. And, and it, if it wasn't for my mom convincing me to get up, uh, this music career probably wouldn't have developed as fast as it did or maybe at all. Yeah, yeah, Lou Graham or, or 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 Steve Perry. There are a few up there that you're like, yeah, you don't want to sing that at karaoke. Oh, bad <laughs> idea. But it worked. It worked. What a great training ground, though, because you've mentioned that you had to sing everything. Or you listened to country at home, but you had to sing the whole the whole karaoke chart, which is everything from you know Frank Sinatra to Guns and Roses, right? Everything. It didn't matter what it was. I mean, if people wanted to hear MacArthur Park to, uh, you oh, wow. know, Welcome to the Jungle, you got to do it. And, and if they're back to back and some nights I would it's a four hour, typically a four hour window that we would be at a pub and it'd be like, let's say, you know, nine till one o'clock in the morning. People didn't want to sing. I would have to sing that entire time for four hours straight. And I had to come up with songs just and not repeat the same ones. So something new all the time. So I learned a lot of songs as well. And maybe that I've been familiar with, but I'd learned some songs too. I learned Havanagila, which oh, is, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. A traditional Jewish song. Yeah. Right? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's range. But then you, then you get entered into, into what is a country music 
or a country singer contest. And that sort of charts the, the path, right? That sort of, that's when you become what, you know, that's when you sort of start to imagine yourself as being perhaps having a career in this as a country singer. Yeah, and I was a big country fan, so it's not like I came into it just going, oh, I'm going to enter a country contest and see how I do in that. Yeah, better learn those songs. I went into it because I was a country fan. Randy Travis was the one who turned me on to country music in the late 80s, and into the 90s, it was Garth Brooks and Alan Jackson, Travis Trick, Punk Black, a lot of these guys. Dwight Yoakam was huge, huge. Yeah, on that was top. a golden era for country music. I mean, that, that stuff was, was really, you know, even Katie Lang. I mean, it was, it was there was a lot going on back then. Yeah. And even the Canadian artists were amazing and, and still are to this day. But that's where it all kind of started. But so I entered this talent search, not because I wanted to, but because, again, my mother decided to pay the twenty five dollar entry for me and tell me after the fact that she entered me into this contest. And it turned out it was, you know, I wasn't really reluctant. I just thought I've never sang with a band before. I don't know how this is going to go. I've only done karaoke. And then uh, it turned into me winning the actual entire British Columbia leg of the competition. And I went to the Canadian finals and met Paul Brandt there. He was the Alberta rep and I was the BC rep. And and he did what he's been doing his entire career. And then, uh, yeah, that just sort of started it off. And then I thought, well, I better, better get a band together. And uh, that developed into even further. And you have this cool story where you actually, I mean, this fast forward a little while, Paul Brandt finished the second, but then he goes on and sort of has, he becomes the Paul Brandt that we all know already. You bump into him in a hotel and he has some nice words for, nice words for you. He did. Uh, I had just, uh, I just had probably my third single on radio that was doing really well. Uh, it was called My Way. It was the most played Canadian country song that year of 2003. And I got to a, an event in Toronto and saw Paul in a, in a hotel there. And he looked at me and shook my hand. He's he's about six two. He's a big, tall, skinny, lanky guy. And I'm just a little dude. I'm I'm quite short. And uh, he just looked him looked down on me and said, "It's about time you got here." <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't meaning to the hotel, so that was pretty cool. I was like, "Okay, yeah," because it took me over ten years more, you know, to make my career into anything. And uh, Paul, you know, is of ninety three, and this was two thousand four. So. Aaron Prochette is with us uh, this half hour, or this hour rather, Canadian uh, country star, uh, many many awards under his belt, uh, not to mention mention many big hits. There's a new one called Liquored Up uh, that he's uh, just released, at least the video just came out not long ago, uh, alongside Corey Marks and Matt Lang, country singers from Ontario and Quebec, and they're about to head out on tour together on a Liquored Up tour, and it starts in Calgary on, uh, on Saturday night and then heads to Kamloops, Sydney, BC, Nanaimo, Coquitlam, Red Deer, Fort Mac, Camrose, Edmonton, Dawson. Creek, Lloydminster, Lethbridge. Have a look at near you, and he may well be there in the next uh, in the next month and a bit through uh, through early March. Aaron, tell me a bit about being from BC because you grew up in Kitimat, a big hockey fan. We could talk about that because uh, what what a good year for you this year as a Canucks fan. But just the idea of being a country music a country musician from BC because I think we often think. You know, I'm from Montreal, so we often have this sort of myopic view of what Canadian country must be like. And it's always sort of, you know, Alberta open road kind of thing. But that's not your background. That's not that's not the two guys you're heading out on tour with, not theirs either. I mean, country has a has a large footprint in Canada, and sometimes we forget that. Yeah, it's it's huge. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in a small town, but I wasn't really exposed to country music as a kid. It was more, you know, the 80s rock, uh, 70s and 80s rock, especially Canadian Rock yeah, Brian then. Adams and Saga yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, country music was always something that you kind of heard of, and 
I think everybody, you know, Eddie Rabbit and Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers and all those, all those the guys. The Oak Ridge Boys was my first single. My first country single yeah. I bought was was Elvira. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So these crossover hits, and you're going, "This is country." Okay, well, it's kind of getting cool. And then uh, later on, I learned more about country music uh, when I was living in Langley after I'd moved from Kitimat. Yeah, and growing up listening to that kind of stuff, it was it, you'd be surprised. In, in Vancouver, when I started playing the clubs. We had five different clubs that we could play in the Vancouver area and combined Calgary and Edmonton didn't have five. So most people would think, oh, you know, every bar you go into in Edmonton or Calgary or Red Deer or anywhere like that is going to have a country bar and country band playing. But it wasn't the case. Um, there was there was very limited few. So it's surprising that there were, the West Coast had so much country going on because it was really starting to boom in the 80s and 90s. And then, um, yeah, it, it just sort of developed into something where no matter where I go across the country, I can go to St. John's, Newfoundland, to somewhere like uh, Sherbrooke, Quebec. And in the prairies, obviously, it's a given. But in the West Coast, you can go to somewhere like uh, uh, even Kelowna, B.C. And country's huge. It, they just love their country, and they especially love their Canadian country artists, which is great. Yeah, it must be great because that gives you a whole circuit of places to play where people know you. I mean, at this point, people will have seen you dozens of times, right? So you must see the same fans come back who will tell you, "Yeah, I saw you in nineteen in two thousand and one." That's that, yeah. that's what a cool experience, and you'll get that again come come next week. Exactly. Yeah, we're doing it all over again and going across the country. And I I would just keep going crisscrossing back on the country as many times as I possibly could every year. Um, I just talked to a girl this morning, a woman this morning who said, I've been to over 250 of your shows. I was like, have I done 250 shows? But yeah, I've, I've done a lot more than 250. So it's really shocking that, uh, you know, she's come to so many. And she said, it's so funny because every time I go to your shows, I always recognize people that I saw at the last show. <laughs> I'm wow. like, that's great. <laughs> I, I guess, I mean, you've opened for Keith Urban, uh, you opened for Garth yeah. Brooks, I guess, I guess you've done some of the big things. What's that like? Because you, we talked a lot about playing the bar circuit and playing the club circuit or the smaller venue circuit, which is, I think for, for music fans, that's the nicest place to see a show, right? I mean, that's where you really get the, you really feel like you're watching something live right in front of you. Sometimes in the bigger venues, it can be a little bit tougher, but wow, what an experience to open for Keith Urban, who is, uh, who is a very, very cool dude. And then Garth Brooks, which is a remarkable story, by the way. You tell this great story about how you wound up opening for Garth Brooks in Saskatchewan a while back. Yeah. So I was on a radio tour in 2016 and my career had kind of gone from 2009 to 2015, 2016, sort of on a downward trend. And when I say downward trend, it was nosediving. Anyway, so <laughs> that, ha- that I, happens though, right? I mean, you know, that's happened to every big artist. Out yeah. there. It must be tough though. It is. Yeah. I mean, that up and down, there was a time between 2004 to 2006 where I thought my career was over. And again, from 2009 to 2015, I thought it was, it was been fun. Uh, But I decided, well, I'm going to do one more album, just try and see what I can do, uh, you know, on radio. And if it doesn't do well, that's fine. At least I tried. And I've had a lot of great successes was let the new artists come in and do their thing, of course. And in 2016, 2017, I had big, big hits that were all top 10 hits. Um, but in when I was doing a radio tour for the new album and the new single, Dirt Road In Em, that was the first single off of that album, I, I wanted to do a radio tour right across the country where I drove literally across the country and stopped at every radio station I could possibly do. And uh, that's, a lot, was, that's a lot of driving. It was a lot of miles and yeah. it was worth it for sure. So I was two days before I was going to do the interview in Regina with uh, a friend of mine, Mike, Mike McGuire. He called me up. And he said, hey, 
when you come in two days from now, we're going to be interviewing two people. One of them is, uh, what do you say? Uh, Father Seamus O'Malley or something. He's, he's doing a bake sale. Keep in mind, this is April. Bake sale, a Christmas bake sale. And we're doing a Christmas bake sale for uh, raising funds for the church. Yeah. And the other one's Garth Brooks. So you can choose whoever you want to do. He just did said it really passingly. I said, what? He said, yeah, we're, we're interviewing Garth Brooks. And he was a mass, Mike was a massive fan as well of Garth and still is. And uh, I thought, oh man, this is a dream come true. I get to talk to my real you know, live performance hero, Garth Brooks. So when I did the interview the next two, two days later, I was all nervous, but I thought I could only ask him one question, but I was going to ask him two as a, one as a joke. And just my joke question was, you know, hey, can I pass along my agent's contact information to you? You know, I'll give you 50 bucks. And uh, everybody laughed. And then Garth Brooks said over the phone, he said, well, I can do a little bit better. How would you like to open the shows for me in Saskatoon in June? And I, I went white and then I went beet red and my heart started racing. Like I couldn't believe, cause it was literally a dream come true. People dream of this kind of thing to happen. I won a lottery that day. And um, even though I got paid $0 to do the shows, I ended up doing two shows for them on, uh, on the Friday and the Sunday uh, in June. Wow. And, 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 and I mean, and you, you mentioned that he was as nice as could be, right? Like, and you're only open, he was on this tour and here you are, you're doing a couple of shows for him and, but he knows you and he comes to see you and do it. You know, yeah. What, what, that's also a cool story. When your hero ends up being really nice is even better. Oh, super nice. And I swear the, the bigger the artist from in country anyways, the bigger the artist, the nicer they are. Yeah. He came to our room several times. He was going around the entire arena doing card tricks and magic tricks for people, just random people that are standing there, people that work the rink. Uh, but he came in several times and he, he, a few times just knocked on the door and, Hey, you just want to make sure you guys are doing okay. We're, we're all down at catering eating. If you want to join us, it's like what? What is happening right now? And you know, I'm 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 in my 40s by that time, and and been in the industry a long time, open for a lot of artists. But he was the hero, and to me, it was like I I was almost speechless when I when I had the chance to talk to him. So what an experience, and and I I couldn't have asked for a nicer guy to be a part yeah. of. Yeah, and and it and it and it coincided with that with that resurgence, right? Because I mean, Dirt Road in him was huge, and then there's been a, a series of hits after that. It, again, I I wonder. I mean, that's. That's the tough part, I guess, but I, I don't write songs, obviously, but the tough part about being an artist is that there you are sort of, I know you have collaborators, your son's working with you now, which is great, but you're yeah. sitting there kind of trying to to capture, you know, lightning in a bottle time and time and time again, wondering how it's going to land. And I, I can't imagine you ever really know why one thing works and one thing doesn't. Yeah, you never know. I mean, that's the uh, that's the risk you take with recording the songs that you record, putting out an album that you're hoping is going to do well, but I think I got to the point, especially in the last few years, and this was my point with Jordan too, my my oldest son who produced the new music. I said, I, I would love to have radio airplay, but I'm not going to fixate myself on right. making sure that this has to get on radio. It has to be the best music that I want to do as opposed to the music that I have to do. And that's that's the difference between this new album, especially it's coming out in the middle of this year sometime. We haven't set a date yet. But the first official radio single that is that was marked for radio um, after we listened to the recordings when they were finished was this one's going to radio because this I think people uh, listening to radio right now will want to hear this song. But the rest of the album, to me, even including Liquored Up, is a song that I just want to record because it's really fun. And then the other ones have meaning behind them, uh, more meaning behind them, a little deeper. Uh, there's a song called, uh, well, the album's called Demolition. There's a single called Demolition on it, but there's also one called 
uh, It Ain't Getting Old. So I wrote it with Jordan, his fiance Danielle, a friend of ours, Ryan McMahon, phenomenal singer-songwriter from Ladysmith, uh, who's starting to do really big things himself. But the four of us sat down and wrote this song, and, and Danielle said, well, you know what, you're, you're getting older, but... You, you can't be getting tired of this industry. I said, no, it ain't, it ain't getting old. And she said, there's our title right there. there is. Uh, and that's the lyrics. Um, I'm getting older, but they're saying it ain't getting old. None of this is getting old. So I wanted to put songs like that on the album that are much more meaningful to me, as opposed to uh, just trying to focus on what ear candy I can give the, the listeners. But I think they're going to get the ear candy. And also I'll be happy with the songs that I released. Aaron Perchett. Country star, Canadian country star is with us uh, this half hour. He's about to head out on tour uh, to support a track called Liquored Up. There's a new album coming, as he was mentioning a little bit later in 2024. He'll be on the road with uh, Corey Marks and Matt Lang, two other Canadian country artists from Ontario and Quebec. And uh, they're they're absolutely everywhere. They're going to be in BC, Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. They'll be in Ontario as well, Quebec, and uh, the Maritimes, sort of beginning uh, on Saturday in Calgary. And then it winds its way back to BC, comes back to Alberta, goes back to BC, then heads east uh, right up until uh, early March, and I suspect there'll probably be more shows there as well. You're a big hockey fan, Aaron. I was noticing, and I, I was reading this funny story where you, you had to shave your head once to try to get the Canucks out of a slump. And, uh, <laughs> I guess you, you won't have to do that this year. You won't have to do that this year. No, I'm hoping not. I mean, ho- hopefully there's no major implosion. But yeah, back I think a couple of years ago, I, I made a bet with a buddy online, and I said, uh, if the Canucks, if the Canucks make the playoffs, I'll shave my head because at that point there was no chance of them making the playoffs. So the Canucks made the playoffs and I shaved my head in a live, uh, live stream, uh, Instagram, but yeah, I'm a Canucks fan. I I'm a hockey fan in general, um, first and foremost. And I remember since I was a little kid, I don't remember how young I was, but I remember watching hockey on TV and being like, this is incredible. And then I went skating for the first time when I was about four, three or four. And I fell in love with that. It was my first true love in life that I understood that this feeling of being on blades on ice fills every cup that I possibly have, even at that age. And then continued on. And I played hockey at a, as high a level as I could for a long time. But, you know, my parents weren't the, the wealthiest people. Uh, I wouldn't say they were poor, but, you know, they lived at their means. And and that the means yeah. didn't include me playing hockey. So I at 12 years old, I, I got a paper route and paid for my own hockey for three years and ended up you know playing some decent level hockey and and now it's at the point where i actually uh, got asked to play almost 10 years ago now to be a member of the uh, vancouver Canucks alumni so i play hockey with them and we do events and we all hang out which is great and these are all my heroes of cliff ronning and kirk mclean yerky lume dave babich i mean the list just goes on yeah and our good buddy, mr doug bodger who's from the island and uh matt pattinger from vancouver island as well and yeah, so I get to live that that sort of life, and the Canucks are my team. They uh, they've always been my team because they were created in 1970, and so was I. Yeah, as oh, was I, man. as was I. I remember I remember those old Canucks too. Actually, I think the Canucks was one of the first teams I ever saw play at the Forum. Unfortunately, it was like the mid 70s, so I think the Canadians won six six nothing. But it was that it was that era. And you do, I mean, you've sung the anthem obviously a lot of times for the Canucks, but you do a lot of charity work in and around the hockey team, but also. Period. I thought that was interesting. You don't talk about. I don't see you asked about it a lot, but you do a lot of uh, giving back to the community as well. You always seem to be available when asked to do charitable events and so on. 
Yeah, I, I don't make it a big deal. And, and the only the only way I try and make it a big deal is to try and help raise money for whatever charity that I'm I'm, I'm uh, working alongside with. It's not, you know, it's never about me. It's always about the charity. And, and it's that's the way it's got to be. Uh, my girlfriend created my golf tournament that I have here in Nanaimo every year coming up on the third annual in, in uh, September uh, at Cottonwood Golf Course, September 5th, I believe it is in uh, in Nanaimo. Anyway, but it's always about trying to help raise money. I know that, you know, with with whatever fame that I've had over the last 20 plus years, if it means helping to raise money for charities in any capacity that I believe in 100%, then I'm there. And and I will do everything that I can to try and help them raise money and, and be successful in their efforts. Speaking of concerts, so uh, we start Saturday night at the Deerfoot Casino in Calgary, and then you start, uh, you're just on a, on a very, it's a very packed tour date, uh, tour list. Um, what should folks expect? I mean, they, uh, people have seen a lot of you over the years. You say this one's just a little bit different because you're, you're bringing out, uh, you're sort of, Matt Lang and Corey Marks are, gonna, are, not, are not just opening for you. They're sort of taking part in the whole show. Yeah, they sure are. They're going to be an integral part of the show from start to finish. Uh, we have, instead of just having a, an opener, uh, direct support for the headliner and a headliner. We have everybody working all together throughout the entire show. Uh, we have, it starts off with a bang. This is the way I put it. it starts off with a bang. It burns burning hot for two hours and then ends with a big boom. And that's the way I like, I like my shows to be in your face, but still extremely entertaining and, uh, never offensive and hurtful. It's always just something you keep a big smile on your face throughout the whole show leaves you wanting more and feel like you've got more than your money's worth yeah you you wanted to ask garth brooks brooks this question i think when when, when do you know you have a hit on your hands and i think you talked about being in dauphin manitoba when uh, when you heard when you knew hold my beer was going to be something special I, I guess that's what you you just still look for that too like you'll maybe you'll hear liquored up coming back at you in the next month or so i sure hope so yeah i mean that moment for me was dauphin manitoba i don't know where garth's was when he played friends in old places and went this is going to be a massive smash hit uh and liquored up i'll be honest i haven't been able to play it enough for live uh, audiences to know that it's it's going to be as big as it, it possibly could be and yet people are saying man this is the banger smash of this of, of this decade and, and hopefully this is going to be the next hold my beer so we'll see but uh yeah in the meantime i got a little side note too that i yeah. wanted to say that sure at shows on tour we're selling 300 vinyl records we created 300 vinyl records and not only that but within the 300 there's one gold album wow it's a bit yeah. of a Willy Wonka thing here. Yeah. <laughs> With the gold record, whoever buys the album that turns out to be the gold record, they get a free house concert. Could be anywhere across Canada. It doesn't matter. But I'm going to fly out to the town or city that you're in, and we're going to do a house concert for you uh, if you get the gold record. So that's kind wow, of our... Wow, that, that is. I mean, one in 300, Those that's pretty good odds, Aaron. That's pretty good Pretty odds. good odds, yeah. Yeah, we don't know where it's going to be. It could be... It could be the first album. It could be the last. It could be right smack dab in the middle. We have no idea. But whoever picks it gets a free house concert. Well, Aaron, uh, it, I always said it takes a brave band to tour Canada in the middle of middle of February. But uh, have a fantastic tour. We'll be looking out for you. And for the audience, look out for Aaron Pritchett when he's uh, and Matt Lang and Corey Marks, because they'll probably be somewhere near you uh, in the next uh, 40 days or so. Thanks so much for your time. I'm, I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks a lot. Take care.